This is exactly right. I hadn't really experienced death in that intimate of a way. Certainly didn't have an intimate relationship with time, which I think, you know, now you know, anyone that accesses the book, there's a, there's a wealth of knowledge to suggest whether you're religious or not, that that's really transcendence lives in that awakening, right? Of, of honoring, at least we're not going to be here forever. But those are challenging pills to unpack if you're always kind of just living in the clouds, right? Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Fun Habit with Dr. Mike Rucker. Dr. Mike is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychological Association. He has been academically published in publications like the International Journal of Workplace Health Management and more. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in many publications, including The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, Vox, Thrive Global, Mindful, Mind Body Green, and much, much more. In all, he has earned five advanced degrees, people, five, including a PhD in organizational psychology and an MBA. He currently serves as senior leader at Active Wellness and is the author of his new book, which we are going to dive into today, The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Dr. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I've got so many places to go here to start for us. Um, one is, I just have to say, uh, you're you're from Davis. I yeah. went to my wife and I went to school in Davis. Okay, and, uh, I, didn't, so, uh, I didn't know yeah. that. So we have that that have that connection, and it sounded like you got out relatively early, and we've been trying to find our way back to those memories ever since. You know, I love Davis. Um, in fact, uh, you know, you don't really do book tours anymore, but Avid Reader is going to have me back. It's actually nice. two Aggies that came back and purchased it, and. Yeah, so um, I have a lot of uh, fondness for that little city. Now, as you know, I was a little bit rebellious in my youth. And so to piss off two UC Davis professors, I went to yes. Chico State. Because <laughs> 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 there's nothing worse. But, and I had totally. a great time there. Um, my brother ended up uh, going to UC Davis. He was in the Calagi band and just had the best time. You know, that's essentially... I think the biggest fraternity there, <laughs> you know, yeah. I know they have yeah. uh, traditional fraternities, but the Aggie band, um, you know, he would go back every year for alumni events and things of that nature. But anyways, you know, not to get too into yeah. it, but yes, I love Davis and it, it, it's a great place to raise kids. So it, I can see yeah. why you want to go back. Yeah. Um, I love that little, uh, 
yeah, the, the way to get back at uh, Davis professors is go to Chico <laughs> State. I would like to say I'm gathering a strong and determined personality for a lot of your life, which still it shines through. We're going to talk about like you you have a lot of drive from what I gather. Yeah, I think it's um, I have tenacity and I have a high affinity for autonomy. And so probably an unhealthy strive for autonomy, although I think you know, maybe that was my calling because I know we're going to get into it a little bit. Um, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist by academic trade. I'm an organizational psychologist, but, uh, and I don't talk about this probably enough that one of the big insights prior to the origin story that has been overshared, um, which we might get into later mm-hmm. is, you know, this big light bulb moment of, uh, when I was doing my thematic analysis for my dissertation, like, wow, Autonomy really is like the big thing with regards to not just psychological well-being, but physiological well-being when it has when it comes to our work environments. Right. And so, you know, it it, it came out later once I started to put all the work together from the book. But I think, you know, that is, you know, at, at the core, what makes a lot of us have that psychological safety where everything else thrives. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a ton you know, I know you get deep with a lot of your guests with regards to, you know, how they were parented, you know, for better or worse, my parents both made the choice in a publisher parish environment that work was going to take a precedent over parenting. Um, and there are reasons for that, that I've now forgiven them. But during uh, my childhood, it was tough. You know, they were always in the lab, you know, mm-hmm. we, um, when they couldn't get a sitter, we would just sit there in Everson Hall you know, um, Everson, yeah. yeah, until two in the morning. Yeah. Um, so right or wrong that I, you know, I wanted to be able to express myself and, um, and, and also make connections. I have high affinity needs and I just wasn't finding that at home. So mm-hmm. I emancipated and, yeah, and I actually, <laughs> I didn't have far the first year I went to Woodland just to get out of Davis. And then, and then the next stop was Chico. Yeah. So everyone, uh, Woodland is the town right next to, uh, and so at that time, that's a huge, a huge step, right? <laughs> Leaving your home and emancipation, just cause you, you, you said that. So for people listening, emancipation is a really big deal. I mean, you are legally leaving your home before you're 18 and it's a whole process to go through that. So the people who I've known who have done that, which are few and far between, because it does take a ton of tenacity to go through the steps to achieve that. Yeah. I think ultimately, you know, obviously, if you had caught me 10 years ago where um, the wounds hadn't healed, we'd have a different conversation. But I've done a lot of work. And, you know, ultimately, I think you can carry, you know, um, that those feelings, right? Like, obviously, I wish things were different, but there's no mm-hmm. way to change the past. And so yeah. I don't want to carry that anymore. And they made deliberate choices, right? I Making different choices. But again, I don't think it was it wasn't nefarious to say we're going to prioritize really wanting to make our dent in the universe. Now, did mm-hmm. I suffer from that choice? Of course. And I think they would be the first to admit it too. But in the final analysis, I don't think either one of them regret it, which is foreign to me. Yeah. Um, but if I choose to make it upset, that would get in the way of a loving relationship that I have with them. You know, it was, right. their, it was their choice. So right. again, I'm going to try and do things differently because a rich relationship with my children is important to me. But yeah, they didn't do anything to harm me. They just made work a priority, you know? Mm-hmm. And then knowing this, 
I'm fast forwarding to your first Ironman in <laughs> Australia. Was it Australia? Uh, New Zealand. Oh, New yeah. Zealand. Okay. Um, they're there with your brother cheering you on. Yeah, but that's funny. It's something that I do skirt a little bit, and yeah, and I'm calling my dad out. Um, yeah, but is uh, so in the book, you'll find that I wanted to tackle the Iron Man, but I wanted to do it in my way, where it wasn't grueling. It was just having a lot of fun, and I accomplished that. But there was a little risk involved in that, and there are cutoffs both the swim, the bike, and the run because you mm-hmm. have to do the race within 17 hours, and it looked like without a lot of effort that I was going to miss the bike cutoff. And literally my dad was like, wow, I can't believe we came all the way to New Zealand for this. (laughs) (laughs) Some things don't Uh, change. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Powerful motivation because you did squeak in. You you, you did it. You did it. I don't know anyone that's... Yeah, for the folks that have done that, especially the ones that have have done it with tenacity and and not training, getting to those transition tents are just such <laughs> a moment of comfort when you're like, oh my gosh, I did it. And I love running. So that was, you know, the deck was stacked in my favor of having, yeah. you know, the marathon at the end because I was like, okay, this is the thing I can this do. This is I, the easy part for you. Yeah. 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 Let's, um, you mentioned the origin story. So let's, let's go there. Yeah. Tell everyone. So, I had up until 2016, you mentioned I was a charter member of the International Positive Psych Association. And and why that's important is that that came about, I think it's 2009. It was this influx of interest in Cheek Sent Me High's work on flow. Yep. Marty Seglerman had dropped a book, I think the year prior, or maybe two years prior, called Authentic Happiness that a lot of people enjoyed. Um, Signature Strengths had just come out. And so that group of professors wanted to create a facet of psychology that was different than treating mental illness, where you could use these tools of psychology for betterment rather than for treatment. And I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I have a mentor to this day by the name of Michael Gervais. He's a clinical psychologist. Um, He's made a name for himself working with the Seattle Seahawks. And and we were both like soaking all that up, also you know, performance psychology and things of that nature. And I was living that life over optimizing every aspect of my life that I could. Uh, my wife and I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And because uh, I had gone to US- USC after uh, mm-hmm. uh, Chico. And um, so we moved back to Northern California. And I really got involved with the quantified self movement, Gary mm-hmm. Wolf. And yep. you know, so yeah. not only was I like, paying too much attention to all these tools of positive psychology, but I was also tracking my days like, Oh, I got a seven in happiness today. Like what can I do better tomorrow? Right. Right. But it was sort of working, you know, it was, it was a system of my own design that in the moment I I was doing okay, where it became problematic was in 2016, I lost my younger brother quite suddenly to a pulmonary Mm -hmm. embolism. Um, And then a couple months later, the, the two, don't have a relationship to each other. It's just bad timing. But I found out that I'd likely gotten an injury that went unnoticed and it had turned into advanced osteoarthritis and I needed to get a mechanical hip, which meant I could never run again. So here I you know, have this devastating news with regards to my brother, devastating loss. Um, and I found out that the way I mitigated low level anxiety for my entire life was going to be ripped away from me. Mm-hmm. Yet, 
you know, I'd always willed myself out of like, you know, low level malaise. So I was like, I can do it again. And I just kept, you know, pounding the pavement with all of these tools of happiness, you know, trying to make myself happy. And paradoxically, I was making myself really unhappy. In fact, to the point where, you know, I was probably broaching clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And so whether this is serendipitous or not, during that period, there was this emerging research that the person I really like, her name is Dr. Iris Mouse out of Cal, but her work's been replicated all across the board that here in the Western world, especially during that period when we weren't talking about toxic positivity yet, but there was mm-hmm. all this, you know, mm-hmm. good vibes only kind of nonsense that people that were overly concerned with their happiness. So the distinction there is concern, not valuing happiness, not wanting people to thrive, not wanting your kids to have fun and smile, but worrying about why am I not happy and, and, and kind of that rumination was a direct line to really poor clinical mental hygiene. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting real close to something really bad and I was just fortunate to fall on that science. And I was like, wow, okay, this is interesting, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm actually doing damage with things that had worked and um, I'm not happy And that kind of freed a little bit of space to go, okay, actually, you know, I haven't even taken time to mourn my brother's death. Like I've just kind of tried to be, you know, I was sad, obviously, during the Mm -hmm. funeral and whatnot, but I really hadn't unpacked it. And maybe to your point, because, you know, for better or worse, I had always kind of just moved fast to get to, you know, out of the, you know, away from the, the problem behind me and into something new that had sort of been a, you know, a distraction. But this was you know, a a time for unpacking some pretty rich things that happen in life, right? I hadn't really experienced death in that intimate of a way, certainly Mm -hmm. didn't have an intimate relationship with time, which I think, you know, now anyone that accesses the book, there's there's a wealth of knowledge to suggest whether you're religious or not, that that's really transcendence lives in that awakening, right? Mm -hmm. Of of honoring, at least we're not going to be here forever. But those are challenging pills to unpack if you're always kind of just living in the clouds, right? Yeah. And so, okay, I'm unhappy. What next? Because, you know, all of the the tools that I had in my toolbox, you know, at in that moment weren't going to be helpful. And so I, I fell back on this sense of, you know, when we feel at least in control, even if we're in negative emotions, when we can recapture our agency and autonomy, generally you know, not right away because it requires some equity, right? It requires us to index and encode joyful memories, but that we can take an action-oriented approach, you know, by our own design and start just having some fun, mm-hmm. whether that, you know, enjoying time with your friends, even if it's, you know, not to go to an amusement park or whatever, but really just enjoy rich time with them and maybe unload a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's getting out and reconnecting with things that you like to do. For me, that's surfing and being in the water, Um, Or maybe it's just biasing your environment, like going to a comedy club or being Mm -hmm. around, you know, things that are fun so that you are reminded that, yes, the world is full of bad, but it's also full of good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, once you start to get on that path, a couple of things happen, right? One, obviously, you're indexing some pretty cool stuff, right? Yeah. But two, that reassertion of, wow, okay, so I can't control everything that happens to me. But I really can control the probability that something fun and joyful is going to happen. 
mm-hmm. is really illuminating. And then mm-hmm. you can, you know, that frees up the space to do some of the heavier work, but then also a reminder that, Hey, if I've had enough today, that, you know, good times are right around the corner. And like, I, ha- I can make that choice actively. And I really appreciate in the book, how you talk about the challenge, like the challenge and the fallacy of seeking happiness for someone who's been a part, a major part of the uh, po- positive psychology movement for the last couple decades, how like, we're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but it's it's not all it's cracked up to be, and it's elus- it can be elusive, but also, as you discuss, there's so much self-criticalness that goes into not feeling the way we're seeking or trying to feel, whereas if you go towards fun, it's an immersive experience that all the other stuff just falls away. All that analytical, the negative, the criticalness are our obsessiveness, our perfectionistic tendencies, like we're more able to be in that mindful moment in fun. Yeah. You know, I enjoy that you, you know, generally one of the first questions is, can you give me your definition of fun and definition of happiness? And like, I can do that. But I think just knowing that happiness, no matter how you define it, is an act of evaluation is where it becomes problematic, right? And so we know that for a host of reasons in geek speak, we call that self perception, but you know, really anyone that understands that identity has a big impact on us. Once you start to ruminate on that gap between happiness being on the horizon and where Mm -hmm. you are, whether it happens consciously or unconsciously really depends on where you are in your own Mm self-development, but it's going to happen. And, you know, once you start day after day, like, okay, well, here's another day where I'm not happy that starts to, Oh, I must be an unhappy person. And then you start to make interesting choices and it's insidious because it happens over months. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whether, you know, especially for folks that are familiar with clinical psychology, whether you, you know, prescribe the CBT or act, we still know that these internal scripts over time have huge impacts so Mm -hmm. much. So, you know, right. In the last five years, we know CBT beats SSRIs and what it was three weeks ago where, you know, a really rigorous study found that mindfulness beats benzos. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like knowing that these internal scripts that we have and that an acknowledgement that we can control them by being a little bit action oriented becomes extremely important through that paradigm. Yes. Yes. And, um, for listeners, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT act, a, a, a new, uh, modern iteration of CBT, uh, acceptance commitment therapy. These are all about changing the way we think and feel and regulate our body and our emotions. And it is powerful that these things can match or surpass the traditional um, psychotropics that are used with success for lots of people. Because you also talk about in the book, fun is important. And there are many things we can purposely do to create the type of life we want. And yet... If we have treatment-resistant depression, severe anxiety, it's it's not enough, right? We do need to seek more clinical support to get ourselves to a place where we can really, I think, ride the wave of of, of fun. And and I guess I'm going to keep going here. It's important, and, so please. Yeah, do. yeah, yeah. So I'd say, like, because the fun thing, as you point out, says, like, we've fun has been belittled 
in our culture as as this childish thing that we adults are supposed to have less fun and be more serious and like get to work and fun is a is a experience that changes our neurochemistry just like changing our scripts and just like taking psychotropic medication yeah so two things and they're quite different so i'm going to compartmentalize them so certainly, you know, this work, I lean on Sonia Lubomirsky here, but it's clear that there is a component that we have some domain over. And then it's clear that if you have a biological predisposition, you need medicine. You're not going to be able to will yourself out of it. Mm-hmm. And in my author's note, I talk about that. I got long COVID. It uh, inhibited my ability to sleep. And once I couldn't sleep, I got clinical depression. And mm-hmm. so I needed medicine to be able to sleep. I, right, fun right. wasn't going to help me because for whatever reason, you know, I think it was, they're still trying to figure that out, but likely some sort of cortisol dysregulation and I needed medicine to get right. I wasn't mm-hmm. going to get on a Ferris wheel and all of a sudden right. be able to sleep. Right. Right. So that's important. Um, the second is, I think we're on an awakening and again, serendipitous or not, I think I kind of lucked in on just, you know, the beginning of a realization that how important leisure time is, you know, because leisure is generally equated to fun in the literature to the way we didn't really pay attention to that for sleep in the nineties, right? Like mm-hmm. in the nineties, even smart people, you know, that kind of had a clinical background would be like, you know, listen to the Gary V's of the world, right? Well, yeah, you know, if you want to make a life for yourself, you know, that's done in the margins. So put your kids to bed, be a good dad, you know, and then grind it out from 11 to two. You don't hear even the most pedestrian life coach that doesn't have any sort of grounding and wisdom say that anymore, because it's so common knowledge that if you're not, you know, getting at least seven hours of sleep a night, that you're not going to be productive. Like ultimately Mm -hmm. your whole life is going to fall apart. Right. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, only 20 years ago, 20 to 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. We were, that was still a trophy sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. I think you'll find the same with leisure here in the next 10 to 20 years. And we're so behind when you look at, you know, our viewpoint of that, you know, based on the developed world, we, I mean, we are so far down um, to the point where, you know, Fortune 500 companies get it. They're incentivizing you to take vacations and actually take some time off the table for yourself. And so what we know is that if you're not, you know, the 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 time isn't as discreet as, as sleep recommendations. You know, sleep, I think seven right. to eight is, you know, applies to most people. Cassie Holmes out of UCLA said, you know, it's two to five hours a day, which when you, that's just still not well accepted by people. Like, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. But so I would suggest, okay, throw out the science. Are you, can you say that at least one to three hours out of your week, you're owning that, even if it's with other people, even if it's with your kids and you're doing something you want to do for the sake of just having fun. Mm-hmm. And what, what we're going to find out about leisure and all its aspects and complexities is that if you're not prioritizing it the same way that you, that you were now smart about prioritizing sleep, that you're just not going to be the best version of yourself. And we already know that through productivity studies. And then right. just, you know, even folks that have this slant of living a dutiful life, you know, I, I don't know if you've talked about the U-shaped curve of happiness before on your mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
So for folks that aren't familiar with that, there's pretty clear, again, these are generalizations, but pretty clear evidence that, you know, between 30 and 50, especially in modern times where we're having kids later and our parents are living longer, that we, that that group of people, 30 to 50, live a dutiful life because they have so many people they need to care for. Mm-hmm. But when they're not having fun, when they don't feel like their life is fulfilling, they don't show up as the best versions of themselves. So even if it's that, if that's their identity, if that's their driving motivation, like I want to do things for other people, it's almost paradoxical, right? Because by yes. not, yeah. So, yeah. Well, and particularly when we're talking about parenting, which there's a piece in the book, my wife and I, I had, I read her uh, some things, <laughs> which I'll, I'll say we were hysterical last night. Um, because as you know, a cornerstone of this show is the way to be a healthy parent and raise healthy kids is to focus on our own health. And as you're pointing out, a huge part of our health is leisure, time for self, um, time to be creative, time to laugh, time to all this stuff, which can include kids. But we have this really interesting parenting culture where people are feel very guilty if they're not spending all their time on their kids, which is an interesting study we'll get to that you in the book. But the, the funny part is when you uh, cite, uh, is it uh, Dan Gilbert, uh, professor? Is it Dan yeah, Gilbert? Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stumbling on Happiness, uh, Harvard professor, classic book, 2007. He's talking to a crowd, as you state, and he basically says something to the effect that, um, kids are the high, like give us the greatest sense of joy because they've stripped away every other source of fun and enjoyment in our life. <laughs> it's the paradox of toxic parent positivity mentality, which I'll draw, you know, right? That correlation with, uh, you know, the toxic positivity. No, that's exactly right. And it's an interesting time in the West. Like here I start to walk carefully because there's social norms that aren't easily undone, right? But So all I can do is present the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And the evidence is that here in the West, we do have an extra set of burdens because when we don't live in a collectivist society, the burden of child rearing really does become our burden. And so that's not necessarily something you can rationalize away, but you can regain, again, autonomy on the way that you approach that, right? And so making space to ensure that your partnership is strong, I believe is important. And again, I always, you know, you're the expert, so I'm bouncing this off of you. Um, you're nodding in agreement. So I think I'm on the sign because here am. I am definitely standing on the shoulder of giants. As you mentioned, I'm a bit self-deprecating in that chapter because I can tell you what I found about having fun with the kids, but I'm certainly not a parenting expert. I'm I'm learning every week what I do right and wrong. And as I've mentioned, although I love my parents, I didn't have the best role models. So, Mm -hmm. but what I did find out is that, and, and, you know, it's quite clear is that, you know, in years past, especially for fathers, we weren't meant to be their best friends. We weren't meant to be their playmates all the time, you know, we were meant to spread out these duties so that it was, we could, you know, approach those moments, you know, with a little bit of reserve. And the, the, so this idea, you know, um, it kind of falls back on transactional analysis. I mean, there's some truth to that, but the paradigm between when we're supposed to be a parent, when we're supposed to be an adult and when we have creative license to be a kid has really evolved, especially here in the U S you know, over just the last 40 years, really. 
this is making me think about um, my experience. So my experience with my dad, and then my experience as a dad when it comes came to sports. So I was ecstatic if my dad showed up to uh, one of my uh, like baseball games after work. Uh, like it was so exciting. He, oh, seventh inning, there he is. And you know, there might be three games that week and one of the games he shows up at the end. I was ecstatic. It makes me think of, um, let's see in your, um, hedonic, uh, what, what of your terms, uh, hedonic vi- variable, hedonic, variable what, hedonics, yeah. yeah, variable hedonics. So we'll, we'll get to that because sure, that's sure. important. So this idea that I had these little doses of my dad showing up, it was, it just filled me up. Like I, he, he, it, it showed me he, I mattered enough that he would find a way to come to part of my game. Fast forward to me as a dad. And it's like, if you're not the coach, you're not doing enough. And I'm literally running from work, trying to be an assistant coach, trying to get to every game, completely overwhelmed with balancing it all. And it's just, all of a sudden I'm like, where did this expect, what happened here? Yeah. And it literally is. And, and how do these, all these dads like get off at two in the afternoon and just coach, yeah. uh, which I think is awesome. Okay. So I, I want to say like the, 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 the people who do coach and do, donate the time to their kids, it's amazing. It's just a hard thing to juggle. And then what is the expectation? So this is like the segue to the hedonic variability and like, how do we, how do we overdo it and how do we do it right? Yeah. So the two facets that I've found that are helpful is one, try and figure out what they want, right? And this is with regards to engaging in leisure with your kids that you find fun. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, figuring out what that social agreement is, but figuring it out from them, because, you know, where I've seen myself and so many other folks go wrong is, you know, trying to fill the void of something past, right? Like this is something I knew, like I almost, you know, and again, it's not easy, right? Like I really want to be a good football player. The football players at Davis high were studs. Mm -hmm. I looked up to them. And so, and and I know a little bit about, you know, sports, um, you know, from, from prior things. And so I knew getting my son involved early would likely increase his ability to be a good football player in high school. He doesn't like football, you know, so Mm -hmm. that was a hard, you know, all of these things of forward thinking. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so, at least, I, you know, I had the background to know to not make those mistakes, but I don't think if I had done the work or had, you know, access to the material that I share in the book, I probably would have forced him into it, into something he didn't like, and then right. wondering why we weren't enjoying that time spent, right? Right. right. But then the same is if, if you're not able to enjoy the moment too, you, again, it's about co-creation. So what can you do in that moment? And so I, I I'm sure you know, if you have good communication with your child, he understands that. Right. And, but that variability works both ways too, you know? So once the behavior has gotten habituated, if it changes, sometimes this can be hard on both the child and the parent. And so, you know, figuring out what does that mean and how you can adjust, you know, becomes important too. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, those ones are difficult. I think what I would circle back on is, that it is an interesting time, you know, that we do need to figure out what is the the most impactful things we can do, but then how can we create the space that we're allowing some spontaneity as well? And so mm-hmm. by design with the baseball games, I imagine it was just as fun for your dad or he wouldn't have prioritized it. And when you had a great game, you know, the, the you know, just those moments of being able to celebrate that, 
right? Like right. my son right. just made. So to finish off the story, again, I really wanted him to be good at football, hates football. Um, and for, for some reasons that are really interesting, we don't have time for it, but it was neat. I did I did the work to figure out why he didn't like it. And it, had, it came down to a, a couple bullies, you know, mm-hmm. always excluding them, you know, mm-hmm. and that was uh, something that we're working on, but it, it wasn't something we we're going to pack in two weeks. And all of a sudden something that, you know, is pretty traumatic for him that, you know, we're working on now, but like to throw him into something, you know, that's going to bring back memories of being bullied mm-hmm. every week. Right. Like if I hadn't done the work, I wouldn't have known that, but he did want to be good at something. And so he told me, I want basketball, you know, simple enough. So now he's in basketball and, uh, I did go to his game last week and he, uh, he made this amazing basket. It was so fun. You know, again, nice. You know, nice. that's, that's why we play sport for fun. Right. Because there is yeah. that component of, you know, I don't right. know what's going to happen today. <laughs> and, and the fun, and even, even back when you ran your first Ironman, you made that dedicate. I mean, this was like a precursor to a lot of this formal work. Like you made a decision, like you're going to have fun. You're going to play loud music. You're going to wear board shorts. You're going to have a mohawk, which (laughs) tended to get a lot of uh, positive attention, but you, you made a conscious effort for fun. And I like, especially as everyone, we're, this, this is out in the new year. This is, this book is out in the new year. The show is out in the new year. And to start our new year, with the idea of possibility, fun, leisure, and possibility as important to our mental and psychological and emotional health as sleep. Like to really make it a priority and to put away the guilt and the pressure, particularly for all of us where I share achievement-oriented, perfectionistic thinking can be quite obsessive about things I'm into. And I would say for those personality types, and I'm going to just make a leap here, uh, that we share some of those things. Um, it's really hard to not accomplish, achieve in the, in the, in the formal self, right? It's like, you have to, as you talk about changing the script and change the narrative, we have to change the narrative about what a hike in the open space or going to a comedy show, like these are not just blowing off life. These are critical aspects of life. Yeah. And for a whole host of reasons, it's interesting. So I, I already name dropped them once, but I had the pleasure of being on my mentor's podcast and he's like, so what you've really positioned here is a radical form of self-care. And I just like kind of chuckled, like really, you know, because it's now seems pedestrian to me. And I think we all fall victim to the mask. Yep. Yeah. But I'm like, really? So is that how villainized fun has become that now just reintroducing it to people is a quote unquote radical form of self-care. I mean, mm-hmm. just unpack that. Cause it was profound for me. Who's living it. I think to most people that are like, Oh, you know, like that, like that we have to think of it in that terms tells you how bad society has gotten. Right. Yeah. Like, and so what's going to happen when you start enjoying yourself one stress goes down right because we just know that that once we feel a sense of control of how we spend our time you know that again it's a clinical term right but that's one of the you know main mitigating factors of what we call stress right and mm-hmm. so that starts to have immediate impact the other is as we start to live our lives as we're indexing these things it truly dilates time which becomes extremely important as we're reminiscing later in life. So, you know, this is kind of geeky neuroscience, but 
it's really important. And so the anecdote that I often use, which I borrowed from a neuroscientist way smarter than me, is that if we've habituated our life where essentially we're just living the same week, week after week, which is mm-hmm. oftentimes what happens as parents, it's this, our brain is an efficient system. And so it will store all of that as kind of a single instance. Like, oh yeah, my mm-hmm. commute to my son's practice. The same way that if you had a thousand magazine copies, you wouldn't keep all 1000, you might keep one or two, right? And so if we're not incorporating things that we look back at with fondness, then eventually, you know, in our 50s or 60s, we're going to look back at our life and go, what the hell happened? Mm-hmm. And so making sure that not just in real time, because it's important to do for our own vitality and vigor to show up to the things that we have to do, but also for the way that we feel later on in life so that we live with less regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is so important. Um, if we do the same thing week in, week out, day in, day out, which is easy to fall into that rut, it our life becomes it actually is both fast and slow at the same time. But as you're saying, when you reminisce, as you talk about in the book, it's a very important part of uh, the fun quotient is it's all one big blob. And and it's those highlights. And, you know, as you write about the roller coaster with your brother or going to second city, like there's all these highlights that tell a story about your fun with your brother, right. And other aspects of your life. And, it's just so important, you guys, that we find these ways to to make life interesting and seek fun with openness. Absolutely. So Cree, and, and especially as our kids are getting older in this pressure cooker world, what are we modeling for them and what are the message we're giving for them? You know, those kids that have five AP classes and are on three traveling teams or, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm overdoing it here, but in some cases not. Well, and I think that where's fun. Yeah. And it's getting interesting what's happening to those kids. Right. So, um, you know, I don't know the research intimately, but it's all out there, you know, that when, you know, what happens when kids are over prescribed. So I, the bulk of my research is with adults. So I am careful there um, Mm -hmm. because I don't know it intimately, but it's clear that some variability is important, right? Whether Mm -hmm. that's, you know, you want your kid to be an amazing baseball player and that's all you have him do. So he breaks his rotator cuff. I mean, that's in the physical realm, right? But the same is true for the mental realm. Like eventually Mm -hmm. you see a lot of these kids wake up when they're 20 because they do reclaim their autonomy and they're like, what the hell happened? And they right. just kind of abandon all of it where if you can, in conjunction with, you, you know, your loving relationship with them, make them understand while, you know, and again, I call this, you know, the necessary agonizing activities of life, right? If they're necessary because they're driving towards a purpose, then absolutely. But if their life is devoid of joy, again, this I am more confident in saying is that you now have them in a position of very poor mental hygiene. And I would be yes. very careful of the consequences of that. Yes. So I will, I will validate what you said. We had a recent podcast, which talked about um, the achievement problem. And um, the research is very clear that um, families that have a, a overly high focus on achievement, those kids are more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. 
right? And now that's, you know, that's a big statement. And, you know, we're not defining what that is. It's just for us to be very mindful of the things that we feel pressure to do as parents, which is pushed on us by the environmental press of the culture we live in and our own worries about our kids falling behind, that all has a ripple effect and a domino effect. And what you're talking about, Dr. Mike, is the importance of even if there's an achievement orientation, which there's nothing wrong in that even of itself, we need to add fun. Like that is a, it's, it's a, it inoculates you to mental, long-term chronic mental distress and um, diagnoses. Absolutely. And I think that I can make it an assertion, you know, standing on the, the shoulders of giants, because it, it's clear that that's the case. And I, you know, to your point, because we, uh, my wife and I certainly value um, achievement within this household, but how can we do it in a way that is pleasurable and that is also gated, right? I think mm -hmm. another problem, and again, I'm going to kind of steer back to it, adulthood since that's what I'm more familiar with, but we've kind of lost sight of transition rituals, right? Like it's one thing to achieve. And even if you want to work 60 hours a week, right? But then when does it stop? And, uh, and are you making sure that what you're doing is what we call in the literature active leisure? Because it's clear that passive leisure, and that's things like mindlessly watching television. So not necessarily watching something that you like. And if I asked you a week later, you would tell me in rich detail because it was you know something you were really engaged in. Oftentimes people are like, oh, well, you're just villainizing Netflix. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is that there are a lot of people that plop down on the couch and are really just waiting for time to pass by, you know? Um, so, and, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, kind of going back to teenagers, but a lot of us adults too, I certainly during the pandemic fell victim to doom scrolling where, you know, I would go back to the health meter on my phone and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm spending an hour and a half on this. So, I, I borrowed a tactic from your discipline and I was like, I, you know, I'm going to have my anxiety about the world for 30 minutes um, mm, and nice. say, thank you. Nice. And I'll, I'll come back yeah. to you next week. Right. And, you know, you can, and uh, right. I find that really helpful, but uh, you know, in essence, like what, how are you recapturing that time, you know, so that there is some joy, even if you have an, an achievement orientation, and mm -hmm. so, or even making that process, I fall back on the work of uh, Caitlin Woolley out of Cornell. She's shown how you can make things that kind of uh, contribute to your betterment more fun. So even if you're engaging in those activities, how can you, you know, maybe it will take 30 minutes longer, but you're going to look back at that and go, well, crap, I, I learned math, but I had fun for yeah. those 90 minutes, right. you know, instead right. of just, you know, some sort of repetitious exercise that, you know, and what we now know is those aren't really even that helpful for a lot of, you know, a majority of learners for some, it mm -hmm. might be, I guess mm -hmm. my final point there, I know so this doesn't turn into a ramble and I really try to make it clear in the book is that all of the things that we're talking about are generally, uh, you know, have to do with the normal curve. So, you know, if 30% of this show doesn't resonate with you, throw it out. That's what studies yeah. do anyways. Right. There are always right. going to be people on the edge. You know, I love, the big one for me, because it, you know, it's the crux of sort of my awakening was Sonia Lubomirsky, who's, you know, a big, uh, identity in our space looked at how much gratitude journey journaling was being prescribed and found that, you know, the over prescription of that was harmful. Right. right? So here's, right. you know, too much of a yeah. good thing. So, right. you know, 
you take these ideas and you play what works within your family system. But yes, what is a chronic problem right now? As you and I, I think both agree, is that we we just aren't having fun, and um, and that needs to yeah. get course corrected. It does. It does. And you talk about balance. So, and in the book, you talk about the quantification of life. And I'm really, I'm glad you bring that up because in this, everything there's can be too much, too little, and maybe there's a just right um, category here. The quantification of, um, you know, really big in the biohacking and in the technology, um, active fitness space, health space, it's really interesting. And I'm just going to go way back. So I running is my thing that I do for uh, mental, physical, spiritual health. And I stopped wearing a watch a long time ago because I found I am not having fun. I am constantly trying to beat my time. Like, and that's just when we, there were digital Casio watches, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to guard that back. And do you remember I, the old Timex? Like if yes. I would run half marathons, cause you had to wear the response, what, what, what's it, whatever it's called, you know, the actual GPS unit wasn't part of the watch. And I have this right. big old bruise by the end of 30 yes, miles. On your side. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that was way back then. But I, I realized like I love, I, I run to enjoy. And when every time I'm looking at my time and I'm pushing myself until my lungs are exploding out of my chest, like there's a time for that, but not every day. So say a little bit about where is this balance from your experience? Cause I know you've done research in it as well with the, the, the quantification of, of like all of our biological systems. Yeah. So this, I do have some original research, but I really, uh, just for folks that are interested in the topic, the the person I think that's really done it well is Jordan Ekin out of uh, Duke. And so what's happened is all of these devices are designed by engineers who are generally working with product managers that are like, hey, you know, here are eight KPIs that seem interesting. Like, let's tell these folks about them all, right? And to your point, those numbers we're kind of trained because we believe they're the experts, right? That that they're important. And so we fixate on all of them, right? For running, because I, I was with you when those devices came out. Oh, okay, let me think about my time and let me think about my heart rate and what zone I'm in. And like all of a sudden running wasn't fun anymore, right? Running was, you know, I essentially turned myself into a computer. And so to answer your question, to make sure that you, you have a good answer, I think whenever you want to solve for something. Cause again, we both agreed that this isn't about living some whimsical life, you know, it's really about just enjoying the things that you do. What is it you're trying to solve for? And then make sure that anything that is helping you quantify that aspect, that's really the only thing it's doing. So, you know, it goes back to this simple idiom, you know, start with the end in mind. Like, what is it that you really want to get better at? Cause some mm -hmm. people do enjoy having a watch that tells them how fast they're running because they wouldn't have that information otherwise, but mm -hmm. then hide everything else, right? Or right. wear it sporadically. So you're enjoying the act, but then you're, you know, whatever it is for you two times a week, it is work because you're also, you know, trying to get better. Um, but, you know, the main takeaway, the, the main piece of wisdom there is really starting with what it is you want to learn so that you're mm -hmm. not being prescribed it. And then doing mm -hmm. it episodically, it goes back to that variable yeah. hedonics, right? Because yeah. ultimately, the the underpinning of that wisdom is that anytime we're looking at evaluation, so it goes right back to the problem with happiness, as soon as we're evaluating the experience, 
you know, by proxy, we're not enjoying the experience. We're out of right. our heads and not in the moment. Right. Right. And it is, so it is about, again, it goes back to enjoyment as opposed to a ton of excessive evaluation and self-critique. And I know my, my wife uses the Apple watch, um, when she works out and she enjoys it. And when we go run together or hike together, the fun part is, Hey, how long did we go today? Right. And not, and not like, Oh, it, it, it's not used for negative critique. And so I see the difference from my own running watch days of feeling less than or not enough versus, Oh, this is information that's helpful and fun to know. So the one last sort of warning there too, is whenever we put a number to it, at some point there's going to be a limit. And mm -hmm. so for you running every day and enjoying there's never going to be a limit to that because, you know, until you get a metal hip like me, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that you can do that, you know, until you're not able anymore. Where you see, you know, a subset of people where it becomes problematic as soon as you put a number to it, they're capping their level of enjoyment because if, you know, right. they're only having fun while they run faster at some point that that's going to come to an end. Um, yep. And so that, yep. that's where it can become problematic. And then lastly, Again, I, I talk about this in the book briefly for folks, you know, that have followed me in the quantified self space. It was a big lesson for me where we thought, you know, there was this big idea that data would be the next blockbuster drug. You know, I'm a behavioral scientist. So, you know, and, and I really loved the space. I still do. But at the time, I, <laughs> I just all thought, in. Yeah, yeah, it was all in. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, so we were assigning devices to random folks, you know, in a healthy population and to make a long story short, we gave this woman who was an amazing cyclist who didn't need to, you know, maybe she wanted to optimize her fitness because that was her goal, but she did not need to worry about weight. And unfortunately, she was randomly assigned a weight scale. And all of a sudden, um, during the mid-study uh, check-in, she was like, oh my God, you know, all I can think about is needing to lose another couple of pounds, which... You know, so here we were potentially giving this person an eating disorder just by randomly assigning her a digital device and making right. her overly worried about the quantification of her discipline. Right. And so th that's a real life example where this can quickly go off the rails for some. Yes. Folks. Yes. That's really all about being mindful. Like we're talking, like being mindful and intentional, which is which is in the entire book about being mindful and intentional about. Uh, leisure, fun, and how we live our life. And I'm going to tie in a few things before we are almost to the parent footprint moment question. <laughs> but before we get there, you said something at the beginning where you alluded to mortality. You just said uh, about, um, you know, starting with the end in mind. And there is a real end that we all have at some point. And you end the book talking about memento mori. <laughs> so let's 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 wind down our conversation with this really important concept, which is scary to a lot of people, but yet so important to enhance life. Yeah, I think what I found, and I'm still unpacking it from a spiritual standpoint, because you know the book's very secular, but um, is this idea that once we embrace the fact that our time on Earth is limited, and there's a reason that we don't think that way, at least from a, you know, evolutionary and biological standpoint, the belief is that all of our systems, however they were designed, have one goal in mind, and that is to keep us alive. So the brain can't, 
doesn't want to think about its own death, right? Because even the brain, like everything else, is meant for us to be here forever. And so mm-hmm. it is tough for us to sort of go, at some point, our life is going to come to an end. But from all the folks that have studied transcendence, the people that ha- that live the richest lives are the ones that accept that, okay, I only have a certain amount of time. And so some people have used that in novel ways to create some sort of artifact that reminds them that like, hey, I need to live today. It doesn't mean, you know, it's not the old wisdom, like, you know, like live like you're going to die tomorrow because that's right. really like, right. we a might clear our, yeah, yeah, a little extreme. You don't clear yeah. out your bank account, but right. know that if you're not, you know, taking time off the table today to live your life, you know, something like what happened with my brother could happen. And so, you know, one of the stories I enjoy in the book is of Rick Ellis who survived the miracle on the Hudson. And, you know, he realized he was collecting things and he had this wine closet of, all this wine that he bought and he was never opening it because he saw the monetary value of it. And now whenever someone's at his house, he doesn't care about the price. He opens the wine so they can actually have social right. moments with these folks. And so yeah. whatever that means to you, you know, for me, I'm not going to try to, t- I still tear up every time, <laughs> but it's a picture of me and my brother uh, yeah. on a roller coaster. Cause I, I yeah. look at it and I, it reminds me that I got to make those moments because I might not be able to make them next month, yeah. next year. So. Yeah. And that that picture, and that is a great story that builds to that picture. You made time out of a busy, stressful business trip to drive quite a ways, even though you were on the East Coast, to, to get to him. And you so easily could have said, hey, man, I'm just going to have to do this next time. I just got so much going on here, right? Yeah. Could have easily happened. Yeah. And I mean, I, what he was my brother. So, you know, I, not to embellish, we were doing that, but I found that I was definitely doing that with friends all the time. Right. And now I don't do that with friends either after my brother's yeah. death. I mean, I just yeah. think it, you know, it's easy because you're like, ah, well, I'll be back here. Right. And you know, put that to some scrutiny. First of all, right. a lot of times you're not yeah. <laughs> just, that's a lie. I, right. I have a joke in there from, John Mulaney, who I'm, I'm not going to try and butcher it here, but it's just, you know, he pokes fun at this. We just do that now because, yeah. you know, we're a little bit tired and we don't, we, we, we don't appreciate that those moments don't happen a lot. And so as soon yeah. as you actualize that, wait, these opportunities only come sparsely, you make the best of them. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing is, we, you know, this... Some people fall victim to this more than others, but it's clear from you know research that I cite in the book that I was surprised that actually a majority of folks do they feel like they're bothering the other person. But mm-hmm. you know, that that's those type you know speaking of the normal curve, it's like always in the eighties or nineties where you survey the other person like, did you feel like you were bothered? And they're like, absolutely not. I was just stoked <laughs> to be invited to go do something. Right. So right. All stories we tell ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dr. Mike, it's time. All right. Parent, foot, parent footprint moment question. Uh, Here so we this, go. This one is an original, but... Uh, All right, wait, I got, I got to say it, though. I got to uh, state it for, for, the, for the, okay. any new listeners. I'm going to okay. state it, but you are prepared, man. You are yeah, like ready yeah. to dive in. Okay. Homework. All right, here we go. So <laughs> tell us about a time. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. 
And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. Yeah. So, so when I was during the process of unpacking uh, Brian's death, I had decided to go to this amazing festival in the desert, Nevada, called the Rise Festival. And it's essentially just a lantern release out, out in the desert. And um, But my daughter had also taken a liking to this movie called Tangled that has a lantern release in the movie. And so I was like, oh, what an amazing father-daughter experience that, that we could do, right? I, I would go there and have this really heady sort of spiritual experience, and she could be a part of it and see this majestic, you know, uh, lantern release out in the desert. And I had architected this amazing thing, you know, out into the future and we were going to just have the best time. And then it was going to finish with a little bit of camping out in Yosemite. So we headed out, out to the desert. Um, I kind of, one of the things that didn't work out so well is I realized that Las Vegas isn't really the best place for little kids. So ended up <laughs> doing the best I could. And we stayed in circus circus and totally uh, that's yeah. where we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we had a good time there and then I was just so fired up. I meant, I, you know, I knew it was going to be a good time. We had met other folks that were going to the festival while at the hotel. Um, and you know, Sloan and I were just getting so excited and I was definitely getting the space like, Oh my goodness, this is going to be like a really quasi spiritual event. Right. And so we get out there in the desert, we get handed our lanterns and we lay out our mat and, then Sloan starts being her joyful self and really enjoying it. Right. And so I'm kind of putting our things together and she's gone full extrovert. She's running around the camp, stomping on people's blankets, you know, trying to investigate what they're writing on their lanterns. Cause that's part of the process. You get a Sharpie and sort of, you know, write your thoughts so you can release them into the universe. And I'm starting to lose my mind, right? Like <laughs> I'm trying to concentrate. I'm trying to like, you know, really, you know, Again, these these have a spiritual of, moment. Yeah, with these tools of positive psychology. Yeah, I yeah, keep yeah, championing, yeah, yeah. right? Like <laughs> any any second of mindfulness gets a you know interrupted by a shoulder tug. Like, daddy, daddy, isn't this cool? <laughs> like, okay, love. And then you know, I'm still trying to keep in it, but like the more she's being her joyful self, the more I'm out of the moment, just losing my mind. And you know, I wasn't gonna let it ruin it you know, to the best of my ability, we get the lantern lit. We have two, we release both of them. And like the second, the second one's off, she's like, daddy, daddy, I want to do another one. And like, here I am trying to like say a little prayer to my brother. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, like, you know, I just let the whole thing get ruined by her joyfulness of all things. Right. Because mm -hmm. I had pre, you know, predisposition of how I wanted it to go and it hadn't gone that way at all. And so we still needed to eat because it was late in the evening and we went to these food trucks and that became a whole ordeal as well. You know, obviously everyone else wanted to eat too. And so we're waiting in line to get, you know, some uh, truck food. And right as we're about to get our food, she like said the inevitable, right? Like, daddy, I got to go pee. And I was just so in my head in the moment. I'm like, Sloan, you got to hold it. And like, <laughs> you know, those are the fatal yeah. words, right? Yeah, yeah. She peed her pants and I was like, oh my gosh. And it was in that moment, it, one of those magical things, right? We use epiphany way too often, I think, in society. I certainly do just because it's a neat sort yeah. of, you know, linguistical trope to, you know, say that. But that was a true one. Like all of a sudden, 
just this sort of transcendent insight of like, you are, this is your problem. <laughs> you invited <laughs> a little kid to an amazing event and didn't let her enjoy herself. Right. Right. And, right. Like, I know he's out of favor now, but like, you know, Louis C.K. and others have have jokingly said that, right? <laughs> like, you're mm-hmm. the adult, like, right. you know, what is your problem? And so, like, all of that comedic insight, if you read the book, you know, I pull a lot of my wisdom from comedians. And yep. I was just like, oh, my gosh, I blew this. And to her credit, you know, I, I she saw, because I kind of teared up, saw in my eyes, like, oh, you get it now, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I, something to the degree, do you forgive me? Like, I, I really jacked this up. I'm sorry I didn't make it fun for both of us. And she's like, it's fine, Dad. Let's eat. You know, so my night ended hoisting her urine-soaked pants on my shoulders. It was, a, <laughs> it was a two-mile walk back to, to to where we had parked her car. And we ate shitty fries and enjoyed some laughs. And then I let her unpack it because her time wasn't ruined, you know? Yeah. It was, it was me. Yeah. So. I reminisced yeah. it through her eyes and, you know, enjoyed myself on the way back. And that's how Brian would have wanted it anyways. But ever yeah. since then, I've always tried to co-create the experience. I've never tried to instill what I want to happen on my kids. And from a follow-up story from the book with your son, you you took that pea-shouldered <laughs> lesson and you changed it when you went to a different music festival with your young son. Yeah, that's exactly. We went to Hardly Strictly in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we sat in the back. Generally, you know, I do, I, I like high arousal activities, so I'd be out in the front, but I knew that's not appropriate with a toddler. And we sat in the back and, you know, I got him uh, ear protection. We had a lot of snacks because I'm not good on that side. <laughs> so, you know, I made sure the environment, the person and the activity were all stacked in the favor of having the most fun for both of us, not just me. Nice. And we had nice. an amazing time. Nice. Dr. Mike, I really just appreciate, uh, I appreciate this conversation. I, um, it was everything I thought it would be after reading your book because you just put yourself into it in a very honest and authentic uh, and vulnerable way, which is the most helpful for everyone out there to to be human themselves as we're all learning and growing on this ride. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your book. Thank you for sharing and share with everyone where they can where they can get their hands on this. Yeah, I think this is coming out when it's already out, right? So yeah, we're same any, time. Yeah, anywhere that you enjoy buying your books. And obviously support your local bookstore if you can, but if not, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, you know, wherever you enjoy, you know, purchasing uh, books online. And my website's michaelrecker.com. A lot of the science that we've talked about, uh, you know, throughout the hour, um, you know, is available there. So awesome. Well, best of luck with the launch. Uh, so no much. better Stop time going. than the new year. Uh, everyone, let's have some fun. Right? Let's have some purposeful, affirming, intentional fun. It's healthy and it's needed for our sustenance. And let's teach it for those of you who have children. Teach it to your kids. Teach it to your nieces and nephews. Teach it to your friends. Teach it to your parents. Everyone needs to have more fun. Thank you for listening. Please share this with everyone who needs to have fun. And for those you want to validate the fun that they do have in their life. Thank you for your five-star reviews. They really do make a difference. We love having you part of our community. 
Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.